You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things civil war. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. My name is Nick Tony. I'm your host. And today I have a very special interview for you. Uh, I'm here in Galway, Ireland on the campus of the National University of Ireland. And my guest, I'm his guest, I'm in his <laughs> office right now, surrounded by beautiful Civil War books, is Professor Enrico Del Lago. Uh, he's the, a graduate of the University of Rome, La Sapienza. Mm-hmm. Is that close enough? That's right, absolutely. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mispronounce a lot of <laughs> Italian words today. I apologize ahead of time. Uh, he, he has a uh, master's degree in anthropology from the University of Kansas, a uh, PhD from University College in London. Uh, you've been teaching here for the past 19, 20 years. Absolutely. And we're here to talk about your book, Civil War and the Agrarian Unrest, the Confederate South in Southern Italy. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. Uh, so at the heart of your book, and this is what's so great, uh, particularly for an American, um, you, you get a completely different perspective of the American Civil War. You place it in the context of what's going on in the world. And when you think of 19th century Europe, of course, you think about uh, nationalism, and, and um, but you talk about conflicting nationalisms, uh, particularly in southern Italy um, before the, um, well, during the unification, and then conflicting nationalisms, again, a new sort of perspective for Americans in America. Um, First, before we get to that, um, and before we get to social revolutions, your book's got it all, can you paint a brief picture of the unification of Italy before 1861? Because the period we're going to talk about is 1861 to 65 in both countries. What's going on in Italy? You've got a number of um, uh, nation, uh, city-states, basically, and there is a movement to unify the country, correct? Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> but uh, what we have to keep in mind is that the two major players in this uh, movement would have been the two largest kingdoms in the peninsula. Uh, one was the Bourbon Kingdom in the south, which could have had a chance to unify Italy if history had gone differently, but instead there was another large kingdom, which was the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia in the north, which took the lead for the unification movement. So basically what happened was that uh, the majority of those who wanted unification were attached to the kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia. And at a certain point uh, the situation was ripe for this uh, movement to become uh, uh, something of a, some of basically reality by having uh, a military um, attempt at unifying the country. Uh, Everything started with uh, Garibaldi's expedition, which probably everybody knows about, uh, when Giuseppe Garibaldi moved to the south, to Sicily, with his uh, 1,000 red shirts, and that uh, started the conquest of the Bourbon Kingdom. Um, And uh, Garibaldi conquered the Bourbon Kingdom in 1860, and at that point, uh, Basically, uh, it was going to be the case that uh, the northern kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia would have unified the country 
through this uh, achievement of Garibaldi. So, uh, in other words, what happened here was that uh, the southern kingdom, which was uh, large and it was important, never had a chance to become the most important player in unification because the north, the kingdom of Piedmont, Sardinia and Garibaldi instead managed to get that done, to get unification done. Right, and so a lot of people now in southern Italy, there was some promise that they attached to Garibaldi. He'll come in here and we, as uh, landless peasants, might have some hope with Garibaldi, but he hands over the, the two Sicilies to the Piedmont and Sard- Sardinian king, correct? Exactly. And, uh, and those promises aren't fulfilled. Yes. And um, what happens, and I know we're, we're sort of, I'm over, over, oversimplifying <laughs> things a little bit, but um, the, an inner civil war takes place. And mm-hmm. uh, the first half of your book, the theme is inner civil war. Um, and moving over to America, you have an inner civil war after the secession of South Carolina in the, uh, the formation of the Confederate States of America. And the inner civil war that takes place is poorer whites, uh, and we'll get to slaves shortly, mm-hmm. but poorer whites, particularly in certain regions like eastern Tennessee, mm-hmm. are now, um, they're not aligned with the Confederate landowners and mm-hmm. slave owners. These are smaller farms in eastern Tennessee. Can you talk a little bit about the inner civil war uh, in the U.S. and then compare it to the inner civil war that takes place in southern Italy? Yes, in both cases it is also a class war because it is about uh, uh, a difference between a nation that was mainly wanted by those who had privileges and continue to enjoy them through this nation as it happened in the Confederacy with the slaveholders and especially the large planters uh, versus the yeomen, the yeomen who did not have the same privileges and were basically the largest part of the white working class. Uh, so it was a conflict because uh, the majority of the yeomen, uh, even though they got something out of slavery, of course, because uh, they gave them privileges of, over African-Americans, they didn't have the same privileges that the uh, slaveholders and planters had. And therefore, at some point, uh, this would have become a problem in terms of, uh, uh, of supporting this new nation, the Confederacy. And I'm comparing this to the fact that uh, in southern Italy, those who supported uh, the new Italian nation were also those who enjoyed privileges. They were the liberal landowners who kept uh, uh, basically exploiting the peasantry and uh, they had grabbed most of the land or the common land that the peasantry used to to use for various purposes and uh, it was essential for their survival. And therefore, uh, by supporting the new Italian nation, they continued to have these privileges, and therefore there was another class war also in southern Italy, because uh, uh, the peasants who were exploited by them did not, for the most part, did not support the new Italian nation, but they wanted to continue to have the old nation of the Bourbon Kingdom. So you have uh, inner conflicts, inner civil wars between two types of nationalisms in both cases and it is a class war, and it is a war between nationalisms, and it is a war that uh, cuts across communities and families and and creates uh, what all civil wars do, which is really dividing uh, uh, people 
brother against brother, just like uh, it happened in the American Civil War, it happened also in the Southern Italian Civil War for this reason. And and the violence in Southern Italy in particular, uh, there there are some instances where, so, so you have the Bourbon government in ex- exile mm-hmm. in Rome, supported by the Pope, he, given, given uh, protection by the, the uh, Pope in Rome. But then you have the Italian kingdom, uh, the new Italian kingdom, um, enforce these draconian laws on the peasants in the south. Uh, the great brigandage uh, uh, emerges. Um, there's this interesting, uh, towards the end of the book, you get into a little, the historiography of, I think, in Italian history, this has sort of been brushed over a little bit. In mm-hmm. uh, the peasants in Italy were seen as criminals because that's how the 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 kingdom of Italy wanted them to be viewed as bandits and criminals. Uh, but your work uh, exposes well reveals that these were peasant uprisings more than anything. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about the Pica Law? If I'm saying that, uh, yeah, Pica absolutely. Law. Okay, mm-hmm. Pica Law, uh, 1863, and also in 1863 the Emancipation Proclamation in America, and you see a connection in both of those, at least in how they play out. In a way, it is uh, um, opposite. Uh, uh, both They are opposite. Both the way these two major uh, legislations are coming about at, in the middle of these civil wars, and what is opposite is also the outcome that they produce. Uh, so I'm trying to make a connection in the sense that what I'm saying is that uh, the Italian kingdom uh, hits heavily on the peasants with the Pica law, uh, creating an anti-libertarian legislation that is uh, destroying their their chances to to rebel by um, enforcing these draconian laws, which is exactly the opposite of what happens uh, with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, in which the Union uh, government uh, uh, enhances the possibilities of the slaves to rebel. They were already rebelling, but they have an incentive to rebel even more with the Emancipation Proclamation, and therefore this creates an opposite situation in terms of of, uh, creating more possibilities for the slaves to rebel against what the Pica law does, which does exactly the opposite and uh, basically hinders the possibilities of the peasants to rebel against the Italian kingdom. Right. Uh, So these are, I'm connecting these two as turning points in the two inner civil wars. And, and the unfortunate part of both inner civil wars is they don't end well uh, for the peasants in southern Italy and the uh, the freed slaves in America. We'll get to that shortly. Um, one of the fascinating aspects of your book, you know, again, we have a different perspective with the fact that we're placing the American Civil War now in the global context. But also you talk a lot about geography mm-hmm. and how geography is important. And I had to study up a little bit on my Italian geography. <laughs> I'm not great. Um, but there are certain regions that were where the the peasants were defined by their location, um, either because they were near to uh, nearer to the Bourbon Kingdom where they were exiled in Rome or closer to Rome, or in eastern Tennessee, where they were closer to Kentucky and Union-occupied um, uh, territory. Can you talk a little bit about how geography um, played a role uh, in both uh, the southern Italy and, uh, in the inner civil war there and 
the uh, American South and the Civil War uh, there. Uh, that's a really interesting question because geography plays a major role in those, these two inner civil wars. We're talking about uh, mostly guerrilla actions, which were done in mostly in a mountainous region in both cases. Uh, so you have uh, the Appalachian chain on one side uh, with Eastern Tennessee and on the other side you have the Appenine Mountains. And these were ideal locations for this type of guerrilla warfare that was waged by anti-Confederate Unionists on one side in Eastern Tennessee and uh, peasants, uh, anti-Italian peasants on the other side in Northern Terra di Lavoro. So uh, geography played an enormous, uh, enormously important part in keeping these inner civil wars going because uh, it was the ideal uh, way to wage a war against a very organized army uh, by bands of uh, guerrilla fighters. And, uh, and the fact that they were also both uh, closer to the borders of the new nations. So the Eastern Tennessee was a, a, un a large unionist enclave uh, in the Confederacy, but on the border with Kentucky, which was a, a union state. And therefore, this conditioned very much what happened there, because the help from the Lincoln government uh, could be come could be much easier to get than in many other places. And the same similar thing or comparable thing happened in the case of Northern Terra di Lavoro, which was the northernmost uh, limit uh, or border of the Italian kingdom, uh, which was exactly uh, at the fault line between the Italian kingdom and the, and the papal state. And therefore help from the papal state could come in a similar way, in a much easier way than anywhere else in southern Italy for this reason. So you had a, a combination of uh, geographical uh, features like, um, like mountains that uh, held the guerrilla warfare continue uh, for years, and at the same time the proximity to the border held the same guerrilla warfare to continue for years because of the help coming from outside, uh, from outside the new nation and from where the oppositional governments were located. Um, which, in, in the case of southern Italy, uh, really drew out and made it a particularly violent conflict. Uh, and and uh, in many cases, the uh, kingdom of Italy, the, the armies were stretched, uh, mm -hmm. and, and um, the, the, the peasant armies were able to control large pieces of territory against incredible odds because of the geography. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit, I know we touched on it a little bit, uh, a little bit about the historiography of how the Great Brigandage was covered mm -hmm. in Italy and what your work, and I think there were a couple of other works before yours, but yours is, I think, really lays it out nicely and it's very easy for an American to understand. But can you talk a little bit about the historiography, how it was covered? I mean, it what it's called the Great Brigandage. I mean, it is they're referred to as bandits, uh, and and now we're looking at them uh, a little bit differently. Can you talk about that? Yes. So there was obviously a bias in the way this uh, civil war was uh, was seen. It wasn't even recognized as a civil war precisely for the reasons that you just said. Uh, by calling them bandits, basically the the leg legitimacy for being effective uh, uh, soldiers in the field was taken away from them. They were just uh, outlaws. And this was something that uh, the Italian kingdom was trying to do in order to legitimize its own uh, claim to nationality. 
And for quite a while, this uh, was the normal way of looking at uh, at this period, which is still called Great Brigantines, but but it's really mainly because it is a historical uh, historical phenomenon that is called like this now. Uh, but only in recent years, this has become uh, object of attention in terms of calling it a real civil war that opposed uh, not just Italians against Italians, but Southern Italians against Southern Italians, the same way it happened in the Confederacy in America. Uh, Southern, uh, American Southerners against American Southerners in the same place. Um, and therefore, uh, a different view was, came out as a result of these studies, which was partly influenced by the Marxist historiography, which for a long time had claimed that this was not just uh, an episode of, uh, of um, outlaws uh, rebelling against the state, uh, uh, bandits or something like this, but they were uh, peasants uh, who were trying to stake a claim against uh, the, uh, the oppression that they were subject to because of the landowners. Uh, Marxists uh, uh, claimed this uh, since the 1960s, uh, but uh, very few studies continued along that line. And after um, the fall of communism, uh, these studies, of course, became uh, studies that nobody wanted to read. Right, right. And, and therefore, there was a sort of, uh, of lack of studies in this sense uh, in the current historiography uh, that uh, really needs to be sort of um, uh, filled in somehow. Well, and, uh, and now transfer that over to America again and uh, slaves and uh, and then eventually freed African Americans and you are we're now looking at them because of your book um, as the agrarian masses uh, obviously slaves in, as you point out in your book are different in legal in, in their legal status in, in, in America uh, prior to the emancipation or prior to the war um, they're not free uh, uh, peasants have a different legal status in, in Italy. They're free, but they don't own land, and neither do slaves. And uh, can you just talk a little bit about placing slaves and then freed African Americans in the context of European pe peasants and co comparing the two? Yes, um, it is an interesting and difficult question yes, to answer. I apologize. Of no, no problem. <laughs> Uh, it is difficult because uh, this uh, this major difference of uh, freedom and unfreedom conditions everything we think about in terms of uh, looking at agrarian masses, and it is absolutely uh, right to to think like this because there is a major difference. But to imagine that there is such a thing as uh, absolute freedom and absolute unfreedom, I think it's uh, doesn't correspond to the reality of the 19th century. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the agrarian masses of the peasants uh, in in the 19th century were hardly free by our modern standards. They were legally free, nominally free. They weren't slaves, uh, apart from the serfs in Eastern Europe. But their freedom was uh, subjected to a number of restrictions. Uh, first, because they obviously didn't own land and therefore they were economically not uh, independent for the, for the majority but also because they were subject to uh, uh, basically the oppression of the landowners who exploited them and kept exploiting them uh, because of the, the fact that they had no power whatsoever to oppose them. So um, in a way we can think about degrees of freedom and unfreedom which would be much more 
realistic uh, in terms of uh, representing the reality of the 19th century. And of course, uh, the, the largest, uh, the highest degree of unfreedom was slavery and then serfdom, but there was still uh, a certain lack of freedom, not mm -hmm. in legal terms, among peasants uh, in other parts of the 19th century world. And in southern Italy, I mean, it, this we're talking about largely a feudal state still at this point, right? I mean, the peasants working the land for little to no... Uh, it was not feudal anymore because feudalism was uh, abolished at the beginning of the 19th century. Okay. And uh, if that had been still on, uh, the situation would have been uh, definitely much harsher in legal terms. Okay. Uh, but uh, it's a post-feudal state. Yeah, right, right. So you have uh, the consequences of uh, the fact that the feudal state has been there for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that happened was that... Uh, all over Europe, uh, uh, when feudalism was uh, was practiced, uh, there was such a thing as common land, which was the land that uh, peasants used for their own survival, to get wood, to to hunt, to to fish, and to uh, basically it was a, a tacit agreement that uh, outside the realm of the feudal estates, common land was what peasants uh, could use in order to, to survive. With the end of feudalism, the end of the entire system, this common land is appropriated by the landed bourgeoisie, by the rising middle class uh, that is uh, uh, appropriating the land that used to be the common land, therefore the peasants, even though they don't, didn't own it, it was, uh, it was uh, taken for granted that they would use it. But if the landed bourgeoisie appropriated the common land, it was not possible anymore for the peasants to use it. And therefore they were left in a position in which not only they did not have land, but they were not even able to utilize that common land that was no man's land for their own survival. And that uh, led to, a, to much more misery and grief and exploitation than before. And uh, since the landed bourgeoisie was the class that uh, supported the Italian kingdom, naturally the peasants were against them and against the Italian kingdom as well. Right, right. So what happens in, in southern Italy, the great brigandage? I mean, the, there's some successes, uh, but ultimately Italy unifies by 1870 completely. Yes. Um, and I'm sure there's a story to tell there. I'm sure. I'm sure um, that it's the papal states become part of Italy, yeah. um, and the peasants are no better off than they were before. Correct. Mm -hmm. um, and you make the same argument post Civil War, uh, post Reconstruction. The freed uh, African Americans. Uh, they're not. They're legally free. Mm. Uh, same as the peasants in Italy. They're legally free but they still don't own land. Yes. And they're essentially left in the same condition, correct? Yes, correct. Uh, can you talk a little uh, bit about uh, that? And this is the Du Bois argument. Is the, it's a long uh, uh, theme in the American historiography, the, the fact that uh, after emancipation, um, slaves were freed, uh, but the possibilities to own land, which would have guaranteed the economic emancipation, was never translated into reality, the famous 40 acres and a mule, which was supposed to be uh, uh, what every slave would have got as a minimum for, to survive. 
there were, of course, uh, projects uh, to to distribute land. The, the Sherman with uh, field, order, field Order 15 had given families uh, on the coast of South Carolina and Georgia the possibility to own land, but the, the, this uh, order was revoked afterwards. And uh, the idea of redistributing confiscated lands from the planters to the slaves uh, only surfaced a couple of times uh, from radical republicans, but it was never something that was going to encounter the favor of the majority of Congress. Uh, it was too much of a radical socialist solution in a way. It wouldn't have happened. But the interesting thing is that uh, there was this idea that it might have happened um, up until the end of 1865. And um, Stephen Hahn has, uh, has examined these and others. Uh, that on Christmas uh, uh, of 1865 there would have been a general redistribution of land or else there would have been a major rebellion by the emancipated slaves if this did not happen, the great Christmas scare. And, but this, uh, neither of the two <laughs> happened and therefore uh, the majority of the ex-slaves continued to be uh, landless and this created the situation of... Uh, of oppression that uh, continued up until the 1960s is really the major reason why it continued because sharecropping that uh, substituted slavery was another form of uh, economic dependency, uh, even perhaps harsher in some cases, mm -hmm. which uh, destroyed the possibilities of the African-American peasantry to become a landed peasantry. And the parallels continue between free African-Americans and Italian peasants at this point, because in many cases you have the, you have the great migration in the United States where uh, freed African Americans move north to to find work and and uh, go to urban areas, and in Italy many of the uh, peasants move north as well, where there's more industry, correct, and where they they could at least potentially find some sort of labor uh, job where they would get paid a wage. And then in Italy, in Italy's case, many of them end up over in the U.S. Exactly. Uh, working the same jobs as African, freed African-Americans. Yes, but not only. This, this is one connection, the, the biggest one, because the great mi first great migration in, um, in the United States and the uh, large wave of migration uh, of Italians to, the, to America happened more or less at the same time in the early decades of the 20th century, and they end up exactly in the same cities, uh, creating the bulk of the, uh, of the working class in factories. But the other interesting connection is that there is also a migration of uh, southern Italian peasants into the south. Uh, and so you have uh, large numbers of, for example, of Sicilians or, or other southern Italians who end up in places like Louisiana. Uh, where uh, they end up uh, either replacing the former slaves or working side by side with uh, emancipated African-Americans uh, in the same horrible conditions. Uh, and it is uh, a, an exploitation that uh, hits both of them. And in a way, this is probably the, the, um, an example that shows how similar uh, and how comparable are these two agrarian working classes uh, and how um, effectively, when they came together in the same agrarian setting, where they were exploited in the same way. Uh, so it is extraordinary. 
And it is uh, a very well-known story, of course. Uh, it led to incredible violence, uh, uh, lynchings and, and other, other cases. We all know some of these. Uh, but it is interesting that it hit both uh, um, African-Americans, emancipated African-Americans, and free Southern Italian peasants. So it's, I, I think it's, uh, it's something to consider. What else do we have to learn? from? This is another big question, so I apologize. <laughs> but what else do we have to learn uh, by sort of this global perspective or this expanding our lens and looking at the U.S. and Italy or the U.S. and Europe uh, in this time frame? Is there something else that um, you're going to try to offer us soon? Is there another book? Is there... Is there just something that we can learn that we haven't learned yet? Uh, well, the, this is part of a larger project, uh, which started when I wrote Agrarian Elites, which was my first book, which was about um, looking at uh, uh, American slaveholders and southern Italian landowners in this wider perspective and looking at them as uh, agrarian property classes, with, which had you know a lot in common and also a lot of differences. But... Uh, it was a way to expand this perspective uh, along the lines that had been started, uh, uh, being proposed by Peter Colchin, for example, by looking at American slavery and Russian serfdom in comparative perspective. Sheer Davis Bowman compared uh, American slave owners with uh, Prussian Junkers, the landed elite in uh, northern uh, Germany. Uh, I tried to do the same with southern Italy, but going beyond uh, the idea that there was, once again we come to this, a clear opposition between uh, an absolute unfreedom or slavery and an absolute freedom. So I compared for the first time uh, two situations in which there was a, uh, a slave-owning class uh, which was uh, exploiting an unfree uh, agrarian class and a situation in which there was instead uh, an exploitation of a free agrarian class. So what I'm trying to say is that uh, we need to go beyond the usual categories of understanding and think that uh, the 19th century United States was inserted in a much more complex world than we usually think about. And uh, nationalism is a case in point because we, for a long time, we didn't think about the American Civil War as something that had to do with nationalism, but it was the most classic example of nation building. Uh, and that was exactly what, what happened in terms of what Lincoln wanted to do, and possibly the most, uh, the most perfect uh, uh, example of nation building is in the Gettysburg Address. Uh, where you really see that uh, Lincoln is trying to build a nation. He doesn't talk about union, he talks about nation, and he talks about it several times in the short uh, speech. Uh, and that uh, should really make us think differently about what the Civil War really meant in the global context. We know what it meant in economic terms, uh, we have plenty of studies, uh, but in the past uh, 10 years or so, scholars have really seen it in terms of, of a, a very important movement of creating a nation, a nation that uh, was imperfect or was uh, not exactly a nation uh, until then. And therefore, by doing this, by doing this uh, paradigm shift or shift in perspective and thinking about the civil war as a phenomenon of nation building, we can really 
think about it in comparison with other similar or comparable phenomena around the world at the same time. Well, it certainly uh, added greatly to my perspective and the way I think about things. And just your point on the Gettysburg Address, I, I know most of my listeners could recite it by heart, mm-hmm. but now take that speech that we all know so well and place it again in your context as a this is this was a nation building exercise undertaken by uh, Abraham Lincoln and it's very similar to things that are going on in Europe it, it, I mean it really flips things on their head a little bit and uh, and it's for me it's very welcome and I know for my listeners it'll be very welcome uh, Professor Enrico del Lago uh, I apologize again for any of the mispronunciations uh, and Thank you so much for having me to your office and into the campus of the National University of Galway, National University of Ireland in Galway. I apologize. (laughs) Beautiful campus, beautiful city, beautiful country. Mm -hmm. Uh, And please check out uh, Professor Del Lago's book, Civil War and Agrarian Unrest, The Confederate South and Southern Italy. Uh, It's a great book. There's a great uh, uh, painting on the cover. Um, And thank you again, Professor. You're very good. Thank you.